The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Uh, Let's pray now, and uh, we'll just ask the Lord to bless us as we come to the Word. Father God, we are, we are so thankful for you. Lord, we pray that you would help us to lift our eyes to you this morning. Cause us, Father, to tremble before you as we see more clearly how much you hate sin. But God, I pray that even as we see this, you would cause our hearts to be warmed as you reveal how much you love sinners. For those who are your enemies in this room today, Lord, I pray that you would break their defenses and bring them to salvation. For those who are your children, cause us to delight in our good Father, our Defender, we pray. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 13. And as you do, I'd like to play a little game. I'm going to read a quote to you, and I would like for you to tell me if you know who said it. Now, these are all quotes regarding the same subject of warfare. Perhaps the most famous of the ones I will quote is, Speak softly and carry a big stick. Teddy Roosevelt. I heard Franklin and I heard Teddy. It's actually Teddy. What about this one? The death of one man is a tragedy. The death of millions is a statistic. Who said? Stalin. Stalin, that is correct. Joseph Stalin. We see that he lived his life that way. Invincibility lies in defense. Victory in the attack. From the fame... Anybody know? Not Napoleon. That was... Maybe he quoted it, but it's from Sun Tzu, from The Art of War, the most famous book on war in history. What about this one? God is not on the side of the big battalions, but on the side of those who shoot the best. This is a man who does not know God, does not love God, does not believe in God. This was, of course, the French rationalist Voltaire. How about this one? The Lord is a man of war. Trick question. This one is from Exodus chapter 18, verse 3. War is a very real part of living in a sin-cursed earth. In their book, The Lessons of History... Will and Ariel Durant said, In the last 3,421 years of recorded history, only 268 of those years have no known war. Now, this statistic, by the way, does not take into account all of the countless tribal and territorial skirmishes that have taken place and taken the lives of millions throughout the ages. This is just the nation versus nation type warfare that we find in the history books. We live in a world filled with war. Most of us are pretty unfamiliar with war, and that's the grace of God. God has given us kindness and a blessing of not experiencing much bloodshed in our streets. Not everyone on the earth experiences such incredible mercy. One thing that always precedes war is what we have come to call saber-rattling. Here's how Merriam-Webster defines that term. It It says, overtly and often exaggeratedly threatening actions or statements 
such as verbal threats or ostentatious displays of military power that are meant to intimidate an enemy by suggesting the possible use of force. Today, we are going to be covering a massive, and I do mean massive, swath of the book of Isaiah. We're going to start in Isaiah chapter 13, and we're going to finish at Isaiah chapter 35. This section of Isaiah has come to be known as the oracles. Chapter 13, verse 1, the oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. Or chapter 15, verse 1, an oracle concerning Moab. Or chapter 17, verse 1, an oracle concerning Damascus, etc., etc., and so on. The Lord is a man of war, and he is making oracles, declarations against his enemies. But he never threatens simply for the purpose of intimidation. These oracles are not just saber-rattling. He is not just putting on an ostentatious show. These chapters, where he calls out his enemies, he is using colorful wordplay and metaphorical mastery to inform them of what certainly will come to pass. I remember once as a youth minister, I was teaching uh, a core group of students in the youth group, and... I was really encouraged by their hunger for the word, so I decided to take on the book of Isaiah. And when we reached this section, I I would assign them two chapters a day to read, and then at the end of the week, we would come together and we would discuss those things with questions that I had given them them ahead of time, very general questions. Who is, uh, what do we learn about God here? What do we learn about man in this chapter? What do we learn about Christ, etc.? And one of the young men in that group was actually Luke Amarelli's younger brother, Julian, and we were meeting in his basement, and I, I asked him in this circle of students, I said, what have you learned from this text? And he said, I have to be honest, I really didn't understand anything that was going on. All I know is that God was really mad at those people. Now, I can tell you that after reading many scholars and many commentaries and multiple articles on these chapters, I have never heard a more succinct and clear explanation than that. Yes, God was really mad at those people. That is the center of the point of what is taking place. God hates sin. God is mad at these people. So the purpose of covering all of these chapters at once is simply due to the fact that the concept is the same from chapter to chapter. It would be a very long summer if I proclaimed each one of these judgments to you individually, week after week. The concept is the same, but the players change from chapter to chapter. However, right in the middle of this vast Sahara of judgment, there sits an oasis of grace in chapters 25 through 27. So we're not actually going to set our focus on those chapters this week. This week, we're going to look at the window dressing, the the main judgments on either side. And over the coming weeks, we will look there to the middle at that oasis of grace that we find. We obviously won't be able to carefully examine all of the verses in these chapters. So our approach this morning is going to be less exegetical and more systematic. Our goal today is to answer five very important questions about these chapters, which I'm going to shrink down into three main sections. The first section will cover two questions, who and why. Who is going to be judged, and why are they going to be judged? The second will be when and pardon me, how. When are they going to be judged, and how are they going to be judged? And the final question will be, What can be done to escape this judgment? Let's first consider who is going to be judged and why. 
If it is helpful to you to walk through the chapters with me, please feel free to use your fingers and flip back and forth. We're going to cover a lot of texts this morning. But for the sake of assistance and simplicity, they will also be here for you on the screen. Of course, I encourage you to read and study this uh, in depth on your own. But perhaps for the sake of time this morning, it will be easier for you to set your attention here on the screen behind me. Several of the nations that are called out get multiple mentions in these texts, especially Egypt and Assyria. They are called back to on many occasions. So what I'm going to do for the sake of time and simplicity is I will basically set my attention on the first oracle against each nation because much of what is said in the consecutive um, oracles will be repeated. So we begin now with Babylon. Chapter 13. It focuses in on the nation of the Babylonians, even though at the time of this prophecy, they were nothing more than an insignificant fledgling nation, a blip on the map. Nebuchadnezzar's reign is still about 150 years in the future from the time of this writing. And the Lord is promising, even though they are nothing at this point, that he is going to come and he is going to judge the Babylonians for their future cruelty to the nations. Chapter 13, verse 17, we we read, Behold, I am stirring up the Medes against them. The Lord is calling out their downfall. He is revealing that when Darius the Mede comes and conquers them, it was no accident or happenstance of history. Now, I wonder if Daniel had considered this carefully when he was in Babylon. I wonder if Daniel had read this prophet and he knew it was the Medo-Persian Empire that would put an end to the ones who had conquered him. Remember, Daniel was certainly alive when Darius came. He was certainly there when his captors were destroyed and overthrown. I wonder if he was conscious of this fact before reading the writing on the wall and informing Belteshazzar that his kingdom would be taken from him that night. That night where literally they were drinking out of goblets made of gold that were taken out of the temple in Jerusalem. That night when he said, we praise the God of gold. That night when those idolaters saw the hand of the Lord and they realized that their days had come to an end. For their idolatry, which is what we are reading here in chapter 13, God promised judgment. Next, we read an oracle against the Assyrians. Now this is the army of Sennacherib that Pastor Mike has been teaching us about. And in chapter 14, verse 25, it explains to us that God is angry with them for the way that they attacked the promised land and arrogantly marched their armies across it. As Mike taught so well, even as God raised them up to be a rod against the back of Israel and Judah, he was also disgusted by the sin of their arrogance and for their pride, God promised them judgment. He says that I will break the Assyrians in my land and on my mountains trample him underfoot and his yoke shall depart from them and his burden from their shoulder. Then we come, of course, to the Philistines. Now, who is the most famous of all the Philistines? Of course, it's the giant, Goliath. He has been dead for many years at this time. The the people of Philistia had probably not remembered him. He was probably a name that lived in infamy for losing to a small boy. Now, these nations have been living along the coastlands and only occasionally having skirmishes on on the edges of Israel's border. But for the most part, they have not been fighting with the Israelites for centuries. At this point... 
they are not the ones attacking militarily against Israel. So let me ask, why is God angry at them? Why is God promising judgment on them? The answer is found in chapter 14, verse 29, which says, Rejoice not, O Philistia, all of you, that the rod that struck you is broken. Who is the rod that struck them? It is the nation of Israel. And so why is God angry? It's because they were ecstatic that their enemies were destroyed. Have you ever been in traffic on the southern state, for example, and you're driving the right way, you're driving according to the law, maybe going five over the speed limit, and then somebody driving recklessly and rapidly cuts you off and then speeds around everyone else, and very soon you can't even see them because they are so far off in the distance. Until three minutes later, as you are driving under an overpass, you see that that individual is pulled off to the side of the road and they are currently receiving justice for their wickedness. They are receiving a ticket from the law. And in your heart, do you not feel vindicated? Yes, I was frustrated with that person. Yes, they are getting what they now deserve. Of course you feel vindication. Now, what they are experiencing here, the Philistines, is more than vindication. They are looking at the Israelites and saying, your God was nothing. You said that your God would conquer us because he was great. This is evidence. Your God is nothing. He is worthless. He is a fool to think that he could conquer the nations. So they are rejoicing. They are thankful. They are excited that Judah is being destroyed. They were celebrating every time a new city was captured. They were delighted by the bloodshed and the terror. And for their heartless, vindictive attitude, God promises judgment. And then comes the oracle against Moab. We see the central cause for their judgment in chapter 16, verse 6, which says, We have heard of the pride of Moab, how proud he is of his arrogance, his pride, and his insolence in his idle boasting. He is not right. This is an arrogant nation. They are summarizing the nation as an individual here. There are many allusions in this text to exactly what kind of pride they are displaying. In particular, it is a kind of cult prostitution that is being spoken of in this oracle. And for the sake of young ears with us today, I'm not going to explain more than these simple generalizations. The arrogance that they were displaying in Moab is one of false worship. They were abusing people, and they were declaring that this abuse was a way of praising the gods. They were hedonistic and idolatrous, and for this, God promised judgment. And then we reach the oracle against Damascus. Now, at this time, it's important for us to understand Damascus. Damascus is the oldest inhabited city in the world. But Damascus has not always had the same rulers. It has been passed back and forth from country to country. And at this time, Damascus was actually within the borders of the northern kingdom of Israel. So here we begin to notice something very interesting. These oracles are not only about the Gentiles. They are also being aimed at the Jews. We can sum up God's reason for anger with these Jewish people in chapter 17, 10 through 11, which says, For you have forgotten the God of your salvation and have not remembered the rock of your refuge. Therefore, you plant pleasant plants and sow the vine branch of a stranger, though you make them grow on the day that you plant them and make them blossom in the morning that you sow. Yet the harvest will flee away in a day of grief and incurable pain. 
God is saying that you have forgotten me. And for that, there is a day of judgment. In chapter 18, Cush is condemned. Cush, by the way, is what we would probably call now Somalia and Ethiopia. It was a large nation at this time. And this nation uh, was considered to be the bottom of the world. Uh, Because underneath of that, there is desert and there are marshlands that people did not cross for many, many years. So they believed this was like the extent of where the globe is going down in that direction. And they said, you also will be judged. But we don't have a reason that is given to us here in this portion of the text, other than that they have a great army. Then next we come to the neighbors to the north of Cush, the Egyptians. Now, we know the Egyptians are historic enemies of Israel. Of course, they were the ones who held Israel in slavery for many years. But again, there is no specific reason given in the early chapters that we cover about Egypt until we get to chapter 31, starting in verse 3, we get a pretty good hint of why God is so angry. It says, The Egyptians are man and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, the helper will stumble, and he who is helped will fall, and they will all perish together. Now, it seems as though they had never learned the lesson God had taught them from the Exodus. They believed that they were a greater nation, a higher people, a different kind of status. This was a a form of self-idolatry that they literally believed their Pharaoh was God. And they believed that their nation was of the gods. And so they continued to teach and believe that they were some kind of a righteous, holy nation because their Pharaoh was God. And God says for this, there will be judgment. In chapter 22, we get an oracle to Jerusalem and specifically the nation of Judah. And in particular, it is addressed to a place called the Valley of Vision. And at the end of this chapter, we get this imagery of a peg in the wall. And he teaches them that there is something that you have hammered there into the wall and you have hung yourself as a nation onto it. And that peg is upholding you, but it is only temporary. Eventually, that peg will come loose and will fall. And with it, you will fall. Isaiah is prophesying that their fortunes in Judah are not relying on God. They are trusting in their own works, their own cities, their own walls, their own efforts, their own armies. They are trusting in things other than God to protect them from the outside forces. And for this, they were promised judgment. Chapter 23 is an oracle against Tyre and Sidon. These city-states were prioritizing money over people. You see that there's a lot of talk of ships and boats here. These people were traders, with a D, like Trader Joe's. They were constantly trading around the region, and because of this, were becoming immensely wealthy. And we see here that they were trusting in their wealth and ignoring the word of God. They had rejected the ways of the Lord. And here we see that because they were trusting in their ships, we read in verses 8 through 9 that God is going to judge them. Who has purposed this against Tyre? The bestower of crowns, whose merchants were princes, whose traders were the honored of the earth. The Lord of hosts has purposed it to defile the pompous pride of all glory, to dishonor all the honored of the earth. These people were seeking their own glory. They were building their own kingdoms, as we talked about this past week. So God promised them judgment. Now, in case you thought that this was not comprehensive enough, 
we arrive at chapter 24, which expands the radius of God's judgment exponentially, which says, Behold, chapter 24, verse 1. The Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate. He will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. No longer are we talking now about simply an ancient regional parochial people. This is not just about these nations that were enemies of Israel. We are talking about everybody. And this is very significant because so far, every non-Jewish nation that has been listed as an enemy has been spoken about because of their warfare and bloodshed against God's people. And for the original readers, they could have easily looked at these oracles as a form of divine saber rattling. God is just defending us by declaring these things against our enemies. But let me ask you, what about the Inuit people or the Mayan people or the Aborigines in in uh, Australia or the Japanese on the island of Honshu? These people never fought the Jewish people. Why are they listed as recipients of God's judgment? We see a summary a judgment against them in verse 5. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Do you see what is being said here? Do you understand why each and every one of these oracles are taking place? Have you transgressed the law of God? Have you ever violated his statutes? Have you ever even once thought an evil thought? That single instantaneous entertainment of lust or contemplation of violence or vainglorious self-worship in pride, every one of those is deserving of an eternity of God's wrath. Julian said, God is very mad at those people. Unsaved friends with us today, I want you to know God is very mad at you because of your sin. Sins can vary in terms of their severity and earthly consequences. The way that we speak of one another and treat one another and the the natural consequences of those things are different. But before every, before God, every single sin is a cosmic offense because he is perfectly pure and because he is endlessly holy, he cannot permit sin to go unpunished. The Lord speaks again to the nations in chapter 34, and we won't savor all of the chapter here, but I, I encourage you to read it and soak in it. But for the first three verses, it'll be enough to give us the flavor of what is being said in regards to their judgment. He says, draw near, O nations, to hear and to give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear and all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. The Lord is enraged against all the nations and furious against all their hosts. He has devoted them to destruction, has given them over for slaughter. Their slain shall be cast out, and the stench of their corpses shall rise. The mountains shall flow with their blood, and it just gets darker from there. God is serious. As Julian said, God is very mad at those people. He is mad with us, we who are sinners. Those who don't know Christ stand under his wrath. So we know that God will punish them because they are evil, but... He will also make clear in these passages that his purpose is not just to judge them, but also to shame them. Where they have been puffed up in pride, he is going to douse them and mock them. 
Allow me to read to you from one of the more bizarre portions of our passage today. Isaiah chapter 20, verses 2 through 4. It says, At that time, the Lord spoke by Isaiah, the son of Amos, saying, Go and loose the sackcloth from your waist and take off your sandals from your feet. And he did so, walking naked and barefoot. And the Lord said, As my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot for three years as a sign and a portent against Egypt and Cush, so shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptian captives and the Cushite exiles, both the young and old, naked and barefoot, with buttocks uncovered, the nakedness of Egypt. I see those smirks out there. I get it. I see them. I see your faces. I can't even hardly say that with a straight face. And that is the exact point that God is making. I'm going to take your pride and I'm going to smash it. I am going to break that arrogance into a billion tiny pieces. He is going to shame the proud. And if you are a proud person, he is going to shame you. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Judgment is coming, and it will shatter pride. Now, we, we went to the beach once this year, and Athens, my son, who is five, uh, he's great. He's growing up so fast. He's big, he's strong, and he loves to play in the waves. Uh, but occasionally, and just occasionally, a couple of times, he, he wasn't expecting one of the waves that came towards him, and it just wipes him out. I mean, he weighs like, the same amount as Mordecai. And as we consider these judgments one by one, I hope that you felt them crashing against you like waves at the beach. Judgment, judgment, judgment. There is judgment. And the point is there is no rest from the judgment of God if you are under his wrath. The promise of judgment is ever present. You cannot escape it. It cannot be quelled. It cannot be slowed. Which brings us now to our second point, which is when and how will these judgments take place? Now, this is going to be the shortest of our points this morning, but please never mistake brevity for insignificance. This is a really challenging question to answer in this text, and we're not going to walk through each nation again, but what I would like to show you is that there are layers to these prophecies that are being given. God is speaking uh, to these people about contemporary judgment. He is also speaking to them about final judgment, and he is also speaking to them on occasion about eternal judgment. First, consider that these prophecies are on the same, on some level, speaking about literal military campaigns. They are speaking about famine and plagues and the sword that would soon be encountered by the people who lived in Isaiah's day. And this day is going to come soon after, in most cases, the day that it was delivered. And we've already considered, for example, the prophecy to, to the Babylonians about Darius the Mede coming in and conquering them but consider one that was much more contemporary to Isaiah's day. In the oracle, oracle against Moab in chapter 16, verse 14, we see that God puts an expiration date on this promise. In three years, he says, like the years of a hired worker, the glory of Moab will be brought into contempt. When he says, like the days of a hired worker, he's saying to you, I am not talking metaphorically. I'm not speaking about eons. I'm not speaking about the day of David and then the day of Solomon. I'm speaking about literal work days. In three years, I am going to send someone to destroy you. I will bring Moab 
to contempt. And this is really important as a form of validation and verification for the prophet Isaiah. Think of this. The people in his day heard him declare Moab is going to be wiped out in three years. Now, of course, the people of Moab, they didn't believe this. They didn't anticipate this. They didn't expect this. And when he said it, they probably laughed at him. And within three years, they were weeping and mourning, recognizing he was right. And the people of Israel, the people of God, should have known he is right. We should listen to him. Yet they hardened their hearts and their ears. It is really important that we see these prophecies, many, had been fulfilled even in the lifetime of Isaiah. He could look back and see that the nation of Moab was indeed brought to ruin. And that's what I mean by contemporary judgment. These things would take place in history from us. These things would take place as actual violence inside these literal nations. But there is also a consistent theme of final judgment that is flowing throughout these passages. Often, this is accompanied by the phrase, the day of the Lord. Just consider a couple verses in chapter 13. Chapter six, or 13, verse 6 says, Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. The day of the Lord is going to be a day of great destruction, it says. And then we also read in verse 9, <clears throat> Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. Paul spoke of this day when he was preaching in the Areopagus in Athens. Do you remember when he says in 1731, he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man that he has appointed? There is a fixed day that is coming, a day of judgment. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8 tells us that on that day, Christ will sustain us to the end, guiltless in the day of Christ Jesus. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 tells us that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. When does it end? At this day, the day of Christ Jesus. Revelation chapter 19, verses 13 through 16 tells us what is likely a metaphorical way of what will take place on that day. It says, he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepresses of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Let me share with you a bit of an extended quote from Ray Ortland's commentary. He says, Isaiah is teaching us that the day of the Lord includes both the final intervention by God at the end of time and each occasions within history. When he steps in to enforce his just will, viewing history this way, we can see that the two world wars of the 20th century were just dress rehearsals for the grand finale, as are the tremendous events of our own day. Every shock of history is a day of the Lord, foreshadowing the day of the Lord, because history whispers ultimacy. He concludes, evil is out of control, but evil is within God's control. God has created a world of cause and effect, whereby we can regularly see that our sin 
has obvious consequences. If you are gluttonous, you gain weight. If you shoplift, you get arrested. If you start a war, somebody will fight back. But in all of these judgments, God is going to give you warning that these are minor. These are temporary. These are your contemporary judgments that are pointing to the fact that the end of all of history will be a just judgment on the wicked. That everything is moving forward to the time where there is a greater judgment on the horizon. He didn't just, he didn't have to warn us. Consider the fact that he didn't have to warn these people. Why does he do it? He has been incredibly gracious to tell us that our actions and our thoughts are being weighed in the balance every moment. So again, we find this to be bad news. You cannot hide from the Lord. This morning, I read Psalm 139, verses 1 and 2, that there is literally nowhere that you could possibly go to escape the presence of the Lord. There is nowhere that you could go to shield your thoughts from him. Have you ever seen the the super cheesy X-Men movies, right? You've got the one super powerful Professor X who can read everybody's minds, and then you've got the other super powerful Magneto who just puts on a helmet. You can't read my mind. There's nothing you can do to shield God from the most wicked part of you, your thought life. He knows you. He knows the real you. And yes, Julian was right. God is angry at sinners. We are worthy of judgment. We deserve to experience it right now and in the final day and for eternity. So the question is, what can possibly be done to avoid this kind of judgment? You must flee the wrath that is to come. But how do we do that? On the one hand, nothing can be done. For those who are guaranteed judgment, it says in Isaiah fourteen twenty four, the Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so shall it be, and as I have purposed, so shall it stand. But on the other hand, the Lord is gracious. The Lord is merciful. And we see his remnant calling out to him in chapter 33, verse 2, O Lord, be gracious to us. We wait for you. Be our arm every morning, our salvation in the times of trouble. As I mentioned before, chapters 25 through 27 contain incredible promises of God's mercy, and we're going to cover those in depth over the next few weeks. But I also want you to know that even in the midst of these oracles, some of the harshest of the oracles, we find the glorious promises of God's mercy to those who fear him. Remember Israel and Judah? that they were situated geographically between Assyria and Egypt, their two great enemies during this season. They were right in the middle, Assyria to the north and Egypt to the south, and they were functioning like a game of ping pong where Israel was the ball being hit back and forth and back and forth, and who would be in control. And there was much animosity between these nations. They did not get along. Yet we read in Isaiah chapter 19, verses 22 through 25, and the Lord will strike Egypt striking and healing. Healing? This doesn't seem to fit. What is going on here? That he would heal them and they will return to the Lord and he will listen to their pleas for mercy and he will heal them. Wait, is he still talking about Egypt here? Yes. He's talking about the Egyptians hearing the Lord and repenting and coming to the Lord. And as we continue, it says, in that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria and Assyria will come into Egypt and Egypt into Assyria and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. Now, if that's all we read, we'd be like, well, that makes sense. They're worshiping false gods. 
Of course they're worshiping together, right? If they get together and hang out and start worshiping the idols of Egypt and the idols of Syria, big deal. Like pantheism and paganism is, is everywhere. But that's not what he's saying. In verse 24, he says, In that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria. A blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. These are saved individuals. Think of Jonah, the worst missionary in all of history, who literally goes to the Assyrians, and he preaches to them, desiring that they die. He does not want this outcome. He does not want to worship with them. He wants them to be eliminated from the scope of history. He wants them to be in hell and not in heaven. What a terrible missionary. Do you understand what is being said here? When this is being foretold, everybody who heard it said, there is no way I would ever worship with an Assyrian and an Egyptian. Brothers and sisters, we have unity in the body because we have been brought together, overcoming the boundaries and borders of this earth to worship the Lord who is our king. He was, uh, Jonah was furious when he went to the capital of, of Assyria. He was furious taking this message because God honored, God spared them and they honored God. How is it that the Israelites and the Egyptians and, and Assyrians eventually get together and worship the Lord? We still see tensions all over geographically in that region, right? There are still lots of trouble taking place. If you just follow the news in that region, what is being said here? I don't think this is being literal. I actually think this is being speaking about the fact that from the ends of the earth, from the north to the south, all people are going to be drawn into the family of God. God was promising that he was going to do something for the nations to save them. Isaiah chapter 28, verses 16 through 18 says, Therefore... Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste, and I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line, and hail will sweep away the refuge of lies, and waters will overwhelm the shelter. Then your covenant with death will be annulled and your agreement with Sheol will not stand. How can we avoid the judgment? It's because there is one coming. There is a cornerstone that is going to be set up. God was promising a cornerstone who could serve as a sure foundation of our faith. He would be the perfectly righteous one who would judge not in the same way that the world does. He would be our covenant. And it says the covenant that you have made with death the covenant that you have made with Sheol, that will be annulled because the cornerstone has come. That's good news because each and every one of us from the time of our birth has made a covenant with death. But God says that covenant can be destroyed, can be eliminated, can be overturned because a new covenant is given to us in the blood of his son. So if you are an unbeliever with us this morning, please know that there is no escape from the wrath of God. Your sins will be paid for by someone that wrath will fall either on you or it has already fallen on Christ. But God in his infinite mercy has given us his own son to stand in the place of sinners and he bore that weight, that wrath on our behalf. Every one of us us in this room deserve an oracle delivered directly to us. You are condemned. You are going to be judged. We are all worthy of that. And they could be just as scathing and terrifying as those that we skimmed over this morning. But by the grace of God, we can be brought into the kingdom of God 
by the blood of his own son. Final words this morning, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. God, I ask that today, as we have covered such a wide swath of passages about judgment, that you would help us to understand that you indeed are angry with sin and with those who are sinners. But Lord, I also pray that we would find for those of us who are in Christ, that we would see the smile of God on our lives, that we would realize you are with us and for us. And just as we read in Psalm 139 today, there's nowhere we could go to escape your love that you have set your affection upon us. Lord, we pray that you would help those of us who are in Christ to be motivated to live for Christ because of this good news, that we will see the wrath that we have been redeemed from, and we would worship you in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.